Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, I'm Hannah Rock, Deputy Editor of FT Edit. This is a special episode bringing you one of the most popular articles from the FT Edit app. At its heart, this story is simply a brilliant yarn. It's got all the elements of a Hollywood movie. This heroic dog-with-a-bone scientist, recalcitrant big business in the role of the baddie, and the looming threat of a global fertility crisis caused by harmful chemicals in everyday plastics, like baby bottles, garden hoses, that Tupperware you heat your lunch up in. If that sounds terrifying, well, that's because it is. But like all the stories you'll find on FT Edit, it's also illuminating, thought-provoking, and shines a light on a subject that you probably haven't seen covered elsewhere. We designed FT Edit to help you get beyond doom scrolling and to read more deeply. There are no ads, no distractions, just a perfect mix of the very best of FT journalism, from business and global news to opinion from our top columnists and features by award-winning writers, delivered straight to your iPhone or iPad throughout the week. Download it now from the App Store and get a month's free trial. Then it's just 99p or 99 cents for the next six months. Now, enjoy the story. Global sperm counts are falling. Shauna Swan wanted to find out why. Written by Sarah Neville and narrated by Noah. News over audio. Listen to more audio articles on the NOAA app. On a rainy evening in Copenhagen last year, a diminutive woman in jeans, ankle boots, and a casual shirt waited offstage at the Concerthuset, a vast venue renowned for its acoustics. She had been invited by Science and Cocktails, a Danish nonprofit that pairs lectures with drinks chilled in dry ice. Many in the audience were decades her junior, and the mood was more rock concert than lecture, as a voice over the loudspeaker announced, The one and only Shauna fucking Swan. Swan, who turned 87 in May, walked on to the thump of a techno track. Whoops and applause. Wow, I have to say, she chuckled gamely, I've never had an introduction like that, and it's wonderful. As the hall quieted, she began to speak, calmly and without notes, about the animating purpose of her professional life. I'm going to tell you a mystery story, she said, and hopefully you'll help me to solve it along the way. The mystery is this. Since the late 1930s, sperm counts around the world appear to have dropped significantly. While the decline was initially observed in Western countries, there is evidence of the same phenomenon in the developing world, and it seems to be accelerating. Swan, a Berkeley-trained statistician-turned-epidemiologist, believes she knows why. For more than two decades, she has devoted her life to studying the effects of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, or EDCs, which can interfere with the body's natural hormones. These include pesticides, bisphenols, that harden plastic so it can be used in food storage containers and baby bottles, 
and phthalates that soften plastic for its use in packaging and products such as garden hoses. In recent years, traces of EDCs have been found in breast milk, placental tissue, urine, blood, and seminal fluid. In the glare of orange spotlights, Swan led the Copenhagen audience to her conclusion that the innocuous products in your kitchen cupboard, bathroom cabinet, or garden shed may be lowering sperm counts. They could also affect the reproductive systems of your unborn children. The implications of EDCs for human health don't stop there. They can disrupt thyroid function, trigger cancer, and obesity. Then Swan got to the ass-ball connector, a slang term for anogenital distance, or AGD, the span from the anus to the base of the penis. It is also known as the taint, the gooch, and the grundle, she told the crowd in Copenhagen. She enunciated the words with an innocence that stripped them of purience. The audience listened as she described one of her pivotal discoveries— that AGD can act as a predictor of a man's ability, years later, to conceive a child. It has provided evidence for her thesis that inadvertent exposure to EDCs in utero can inflict harm on a developing fetus. Several weeks later, when I visited Swan at home in New York, she said that speaking to audiences outside her field did not always come naturally. Sometimes it means saying things like taint, and sometimes it means talking about erections and other things that don't trip off my tongue easily. What has driven her into the public arena is a conviction that the world might be sleepwalking into a fertility crisis. If her hypothesis is correct, we need to overhaul how we cook, eat, produce, and package consumer goods, and rethink industrial processes. Even if average sperm counts have fallen, The reason why is still disputed by scientists. Some question whether we should worry about it at all. I would not say with any certainty, of course, that we will be reduced to The Handmaid's Tale, Swan says, referring to Margaret Atwood's novel, imagining a world in which pollutants contribute to a reproductive calamity. But a dramatic increase in surrogacies and the use of assisted reproduction are omens for her. As she heads towards her tenth decade, She fears the time for warnings about what she terms a threat to humanity is running out. Rudolf Wittenberg, Swan's father, was the scion of a cultured Jewish family in Berlin and a writer who used to read out chapters of his novels on the radio. In the early 1930s, he joined the anti-Nazi underground. One day, he sent the security guard out for cigarettes and used his broadcast to denounce Hitler. As he left the building, the guard came running after him. Wittenberg was terrified, but the guard, who had not heard the broadcast, merely wanted to give him his fee. He later escaped to Prague and met a young American, Goldie Ray Polterak. She had been carrying messages for the resistance in her shoes. Swan's parents fell in love and left Europe to start a new life in the U.S. in 1934. She told me this over glasses of filtered water in the kitchen of her roomy mid-century apartment in Manhattan. Ever the rationalist, she was wary of treating the tale's cinematic elements as unalloyed fact, warning that neither she nor her younger sister had independently verified the details. Born in Pennsylvania in 1936, Swan was painfully aware of the differences between herself and other children, both because of the family's relative poverty 
which eased only after her father qualified as a psychoanalyst, and her parents' membership of the Communist Party. I was always living in some kind of shame about my upbringing, she said. She has a clear memory of riding in a horse-drawn cart with her parents at a May Day parade and praying no one she knew would see her. Bright and independent, Swan used to play in a large cardboard box, which, for reasons now obscure to her, she christened Juxie's house, and which was her inviolable domain. She remembers repeating, both out loud and in her head, I can do it by myself. She began her education at a public school for gifted children, where she thrived, and later studied maths with a minor in logic at New York's City College, attracted by the aesthetic beauty of the discipline. At Columbia, where she undertook a master's degree, she worked with the distinguished Polish biostatistician Agnes Berger, one of the few women then practicing in the field. Swan arrived at the University of California at Berkeley's Statistics Department, aged 24, armed only with a letter of introduction from Berger to its head, a fellow Pole, Yerzy Neyman. He was a great man, and I don't use that term lightly. He was the father of statistics. After her Ph.D., Swan worked for the insurer Kaiser Permanente, studying links between the contraceptive pill and incidents of cervical cancer, and later for the California Department of Health, where she investigated a spate of unexplained miscarriages in Santa Clara County. In 1995, she was invited to join a National Academy of Sciences committee examining the impact of hormonally active agents in the environment, EDCs. As the group's only statistician, she was asked to review a Danish study, claiming to show a significant drop in sperm counts between 1938 and 1991. The committee said, Would you look at this? Because it doesn't look very convincing. I don't think we have to pay much attention to it, but just look at it and let us know, she told me. The study had been carried out after a senior doctor noticed that sperm counts in semen samples in his lab appeared to be falling over time. He commissioned an analysis of existing studies, almost half of which originated from the U.S. Swan said she was totally naive about the internal politics of the committee, which included a representative from a lobbying firm that had worked for Monsanto and the Chemical Manufacturers Association. It would end up being, she recalled, an extremely tumultuous experience. Like the rest of the committee, she was initially skeptical that the sharp drop in sperm counts, suggested by the Danish study, could be real. She looked for confounders, factors that might skew results. But when Swan obtained the original 61 studies and analyzed how the sperm had been counted, the ages of the men, how many were obese, how they had been recruited, what country they were from, the results astonished her. When I put it all together and ran the numbers, they had not changed to the second decimal place. I thought, wow. Even then, she did not accept the findings. She wondered if the studies had been selected in a biased way. She added 40 more, published since the initial work. The overall conclusion almost exactly matched that of the original team. The process had taken about five years and turned her from a skeptic into an evangelist. Fred Vom Saul, a biological sciences professor who had conducted some of the earliest studies on endocrine disruption and a fellow committee member, recalled that when Swan presented her findings, 
she faced pushback from members who were uncomfortable with her conclusions. The committee's final report, published in 1999, reflected this tension. Unanimity had been readily achieved in some areas, the authors noted, confirming that exposures to EDCs at high concentrations can affect wildlife and human health and led to developmental abnormalities in wildlife. But it had proved extraordinarily difficult in others, it said, including on the issue of declining sperm production in humans. Another scientist might have gone back to working on something less controversial, but Swan felt she was at the start, not the end, of a puzzle. The original Danish study had made no attempt to establish causation, although it raised the possibility that something in the environment might be to blame. What she knew was that there was a trend, and it was rapid. A 50% drop in mean sperm counts in 50 years. That's not evolution. That's too fast, she thought. She approached her boss at the California Department of Health with a proposal to study endocrine disruption. It was returned with a scrawled dismissal. This does not get my engine going. As she pondered what to do next, Vom Saul suggested she join him at the University of Missouri. He told her, We'll make trouble together. When she was a child, Swan's parents nicknamed her the Victorian Lady and discouraged participation in sports, apparently equating a petite frame, she is 4 feet 11 inches, with a delicate constitution. In fact, she radiates a quiet indomitability. In the time I spent with her, I came to realize she has a deep, subversive curiosity. I guess I'm a sleuth, she told me. I like to dig around and find out things. In Missouri, she set out to examine whether sperm volume and quality varied in different environments. For a study she titled Future Families, she enrolled expectant parents in four U.S. locations, while Danish colleagues selected another four in Europe. Male participants in a semi-rural Missouri area were found to have half as many moving sperm as those in the urban centers. Poor sperm motility is a known factor in male infertility. Hypothesizing that some aspect of modern agriculture, particularly pesticides, might be affecting semen quality, Swan launched a pilot study, sending the Missouri men's urine samples to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. The participants with poor semen quality were found to have significantly higher levels of eight pesticides compared to their counterparts in urban Minneapolis, whose semen quality was above average. The findings, among others from researchers around the world, added to a growing consensus that certain pesticides were harmful. Legislators have failed to act sufficiently even now, Swan believes. To this day, we have very inadequate restrictions on the kinds of pesticides that can be used and the crops that can be used on. The ability of industry to resist tighter regulation, whether through obfuscation or lobbying, would be a constant frustration for her in the years that have followed. Her next quest began on a flight to Japan for a conference in the late 1990s. She was sitting next to a chemist from the CDC called John Brock, now an adjunct professor at the University of North Carolina, who told her that scientists had identified a phthalate syndrome in rats. When male fetuses were exposed to dituethahexylphthalate, or DEHP, one of the worst actors among the phthalates, a normal testosterone surge early in pregnancy failed to take place. 
The effects on the rats included a smaller penis, sometimes malformed, undescended testicles, and a shorter AGD. Swan was fascinated. It was a new puzzle. Could something like a folate syndrome affect humans? Her success in working out a way to measure AGD in babies and children to help answer that question has been one of her most crucial contributions to the field. When I visited her in New York, she went to a cupboard and brought out an anatomically correct doll, called Willie, she said, somewhat impishly, and a pair of calipers to demonstrate the simplicity of the procedure, which is painless. AGD, or the length of the perineum, she explained, can reflect how much testosterone or androgen a fetus was exposed to during a very small window of pregnancy. If there's too little androgen for a boy, he doesn't get fully masculinized, she said. If there's too much androgen for a girl, she gets over-masculinized. In the mother, for example, an excess of testosterone might lead to the development of polycystic ovary syndrome, while her daughter might have a longer, more masculine AGD. Pete Myers was one of the first to alert the world to the dangers of EDCs when, along with two other scientists, he published the 1996 bestseller, Our Stolen Future. A longtime collaborator of Swan, he lauds her ability to marry epidemiology with a deep understanding of human biology. It is the absence of this knowledge that has led some scientists to wrongly conclude that the results of animal tests are not replicable in humans, Meyer said. Most epidemiologists are number crunchers, pure and simple. They don't have a clue about the underlying biology, so they do tests that make no sense. More scientists, he suggests, are now combining these skills. But Shauna was a real pioneer. By analyzing the urine of mothers from the Future Families Project, Swan could determine what level of a particular phthalate they had been exposed to and check for a correlation with a shortened AGD in their offspring. She found women in the upper quartile for exposure were 13 times more likely to have a son with a shorter-than-average AGD than those in the lowest quartile. But this begged another question, according to Swan. Why do we care if AGD is a little shorter in some males? It doesn't look funny. It isn't a deformity. Determining whether a short AGD was a predictor of later fertility problems meant leaping forward in time to forecast how men would be affected in adulthood. In 2009, while working for the University of Rochester, Swan oversaw the recruitment of 126 volunteers in what became known as the Rochester Young Men's Study. It provided the missing link to show that the shorter the AGD, the lower the sperm count. College students were paid a small fee to undergo the intrusive measurements, said Swan, who recalled one young man telling her, I'll do anything for $75. The research has been backed up by others. Around the same time, Michael Eisenberg, professor of urology at Stanford University School of Medicine, undertook a number of studies involving men in their 30s and 40s and similarly found an association between a shorter AGD and infertility. In 2011, Swan and a team of andrologists, statisticians, epidemiologists, and a reference librarian began conducting the most complete search of the literature on falling sperm count to date. A total of 185 studies were examined in detail, using meta-analysis methods not available to the Danish academics 30 years before. The conclusion was deeply unsettling. 
sperm count appeared to have declined 52% in 38 years, or something over 1% a year. When the study was published in 2017, it made big, big news, she recalled, eventually leading her to publish Countdown, a book aimed at a general audience. It might have felt like a triumph, but Swan's battle to persuade regulators, legislators, and industry has advanced at glacial speed. The plastics era that began in the early 20th century delivered seemingly endless convenience, affordability, and hygiene. Amid the bonanza of baby bottles, toys, food containers, medical devices, and disposable cutlery, manufacturers propagated a new narrative that synthetic polymers were not only safe, but essential to a good life. Plastics, an important part of your healthy diet, read a 1990s ad sponsored by the now-defunct American Plastics Council. You could think of them as the sixth basic food group. Ironically, humans have ended up ingesting plastic as particles and vapor. Chemicals from plastics leach out of containers into food, particularly when heated. Bottle-fed babies are swallowing millions of microplastic particles a day, a 2020 study showed, the health impacts unknown. An ingredient that was used in Teflon, PFOA, has been linked to cancer, ulcerative colitis, and birth deformities. DuPont, Teflon's manufacturer, was found to have known about the health risks for decades, but only ceased production of PFOA in 2013. As I sat with Swan in her kitchen, she gestured to the non-biological cleaner on her work surface and the cast-iron saucepans on her cooker. She has long since ceased to cook with the chemically-coated nonstick variety. We can all take steps to reduce the dangers of phthalates and other chemicals in our lives, she believes. She tries to buy unwrapped organic fruit and vegetables, and her water is always filtered. She recommends using stainless steel or glass water bottles and microwaving food in glass or ceramic containers, never plastic. But the situation is too serious to be ameliorated by individual choice alone, she warned. This is not something we can buy our way out of as consumers, she said. We need plastic from materials that are not hormonally active, like a fork made from potatoes Swan recently saw. Although its production carried too high a carbon footprint to be sustainable, I trust brilliant chemists and scientists who were able to give us the COVID-19 vaccine in a short time, for example, to put their minds to this, she said. One difficulty in calculating the impact of chemicals on reproduction is that a host of other factors are affecting worldwide fertility rates. Diet, stress, obesity, social factors, and a trend to start families later in life are all important contributing factors, which Swan has noted throughout her career. But that doesn't mean that EDCs are not playing a substantial role, she argues. Nowhere has the resistance to her field of research been stronger or more consistent than from the chemicals industry, which would suffer a huge financial hit from tougher regulation of its products. From the 1990s onwards, an array of articles by scientists have cast doubt on Swan and her colleagues' findings. While some of the questions raised are credible, abstinence rates and sperm counting, for instance, can influence the results and were not reliably accounted for in early studies, others are less so. Swan was one of the scientists ridiculed as endocrine disruptor crybabies by JunkScience.com, a website run by a climate change denier and former tobacco industry advocate Steve Malloy.
Swan and her colleagues inscribed the epithet on T-shirts as a badge of pride. The Manufacture of Doubt is a playbook long used by industries resisting regulation, from tobacco to fossil fuels, according to David Michaels, a former regulator who ran the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration under Barack Obama. Now a professor at the Milken Institute School of Public Health in Washington, he said that research carried out by seemingly independent scientists has often been used to convince regulators, legislators, and even the public that there is no consensus about the harms caused by a particular chemical or product. Andrea Gore, a professor of pharmacology at the University of Texas at Austin, who has led work for the Endocrine Society on EDCs, said that among scientists in the field, there is a wide acceptance of the link between chemical exposures in early life and the development of disease. I think there was a controversy some time ago, she told me, and I think there was an effort to keep the controversy alive by the chemical industry, but I don't think it's a controversial field anymore. There is just too much knowledge at this point. In the 1980s and 90s, Swan was an expert witness in a series of court cases about DES, an endocrine-disrupting drug widely prescribed until the 1970s to lower the risk of miscarriages. It went on to cause devastating cancers in the daughters of some of the women who had taken it. One night, after honing her arguments for the following day's court appearance, she threw some of her notes into a hotel wastebasket. The next day, while being quizzed by the counsel for a pharmaceutical company, she saw her discarded notes in front of him. And the only way he could get those was to rifle through the garbage in my hotel room, she told me. Just think about what that takes. She recalls, with a touch of satisfaction, discovering that the opposing legal team referred to her as that bitch from California. Not all scientists accept the premise that sperm counts have fallen, although independent studies covering China, France, Brazil, and southern India have come to similar conclusions. Some critics argue that even if the drop is real, the impact on a man's prospects of fathering a child has been overstated. A 2021 study by Harvard researchers, whose backgrounds were primarily in philosophy and linguistics, suggested that, above a critical threshold, more sperm is not necessarily an indicator of health or fertility. Sperm count varies across bodies, ecologies, and time periods, they said. They imputed a racist and sexist tinge to Swan and her colleagues' work, noting that it situates men's bodies and environments labeled Western as exemplary, natural, and now imperiled. Swan rebuts this, pointing out that her most recent work, published last November, suggests sperm counts are falling worldwide. Climate change scientists face similar skepticism, she noted. People said, oh, well, it's warm right now, but temperatures will go down, and that's the way climate is. Well, in fact, that's not the case. While she accepts that a lower-than-average sperm count does not necessarily doom a man to childlessness, there is strong evidence that once sperm counts hit a particular level, below 40 million sperm cells per milliliter of semen, fertility is impaired. The chemicals she has been able to link most directly to reproductive health are phthalates and pesticides, where she and others have found convincing evidence of a causal link between reproductive disorders and the triazine category of herbicides. Other researchers, she says, have found equally incontrovertible evidence of harm to reproductive health 
from other classes of EDCs, such as bisphenols. When we began this work, we were in the medical and scientifical wilderness because no one believed us, Myers, who wrote the 1996 bestseller, told me. And then, gradually, we built up the science. But the regulatory climate remains heavily weighted towards industry. Some companies have proudly declared their plastic bottles and baby products BPA-free, referring to bisphenol A, a chemical that can seep into food and beverages and, some researchers believe, harm human health, only for it later to emerge that the substituted product amounted to slightly tweaked molecules, Swan said. Some nights, Swan lies awake worrying. The alarm, I feel, is a global alarm, she said. I feel it equally for human and non-human species. She and her fellow campaigners have notched some successes. In 2008, for example, children's toys and childcare items containing more than 0.1% of three types of phthalates were permanently banned in the U.S. This year, the European Food Safety Agency recommended lowering the tolerable daily intake for BPA by a factor of about 20,000. The European Medicines Agency is opposing the change. In April, G7 climate, energy, and environment ministers issued a communique committed to actively preventing chemical pollution or minimizing its associated risks, including when caused by releases of endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Swan characterized this as a very, very big moment in her long-running battle to wake up governments and regulators to the EDC threat. As I spent time with her, I sensed that what keeps her going above all else is a lifetime habit of curiosity. She continues to pursue research breakthroughs in her field. While studying maths in her youth, she won an award after conceiving the notion that logic need not be binary, with true or false the only options, and developing a system of three-value logic. She resists the security of the status quo, and while she revels in collaboration, she has also stayed true to the independent little girl, determined to navigate the world on her own terms, that found sanctuary in Juxie's house. Her overriding preoccupation remains how to alert a still largely oblivious world to the threat from EDCs. You and I, and everyone on this planet, are really serving as guinea pigs, she says. And nobody asked us. That was Global Sperm Counts Are Falling. Shauna Swan wanted to find out why.